the DeSoto County campus, the fun church in Horn Lake, Mississippi. For more information, visit us at www.mypassion.church. Today's message, if you're following along in your sheets, it's got some blanks you can fill out and just keep you awake, you know. It's better if you stay awake for today's message. <laughs> uh, it's called Party All the Time. Party all the time. Yeah, you heard me right. I got a question for you. Can Christians party all the time? There's somebody fresh out of the clubs last night who looked at me like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. Well, we're going to answer that before we leave today. But that's where we're going to start off. Um, When I was a teenager, probably 13 or 14, my dad took me and my little brother hunting down there in Mississippi. He, well, this was a different kind of hunting. It was frog gigging. Anybody ever been frog gigging? <laughs> and this is something you do in the warmer climate. And if you've ever been down in the Delta in the warmer climate, you also have heard of something called the, the Mississippi stinger, <laughs> the mosquitoes, stinger birds. I mean, they're big as birds down there. I remember, and you do it at night, it's really weird, and you do it in some swampy places. And we pulled up, at the, and my little brother, he went with us, and his name's Heath, and he was probably eight years old at the time. But, you know, we were ready to do whatever Dad wanted to do. You know, we loved to be with Dad. So we got out of the truck, and we all had our flashlights and stuff, and we were walking down, you know, towards the bio, and this swampy, murky-looking dark water. It was a moonless night, and those mosquitoes were, and I remember one of them landed on my forehead, and, I, and it, it stung me so bad, I went to wipe it off or knock it off, I hit myself with a flashlight. Ow! <laughs> I knocked myself out. <laughs> and I know my brother was having the same kind of difficulties, because I could see his flashlight beam, you know, shining up all over the place. We was, you know, we had put on like a whole can of mosquito spray, and it only got him drunk. You know, it didn't do, it doesn't do anything down there. In the, anybody been to the Delta in the summertime? So I was already questioning, was this a good idea? When we got to the edge of the bow, he had his little John boat pulled up there. And man, it was murky, like I said. It was kind of scary. And we got in the, in the boat, and we pushed off. And I looked back at Heath, and he had this little panic look on his face. You know, he was trying to be brave as an eight-year-old. But then my dad shined his flashlight across the bow, and there was these little eyes out there. <laughs> doing this number through the water. There were some hanging in the low branches that we'd probably go under. And I was like, myself, I was starting to panic. And he said, you got your 410, boy? And I said, yes, sir. He said, you might want to put a shell in. I broke the breach. You know, and I was reaching my pocket and putting a shell in the 410. And, uh, and we started paddling down that lonely old dark bow, you know. And, and all of a sudden, I saw a, a snake swimming over by the boat. And I leveled up on him. And, Booyah! And water went splashing way up in the air and got us all wet. And that snake barrel rolled and, and curled up and then sunk into the black water. And I looked back at my little brother. He was about to go into shock, you know. And my dad said, why are you wasting shells? Only shoot the ones trying to get in the boat. <laughs> and then about that time, we heard this. And he said, you hear that? And I said, what is it, Daddy? He said, that's old Kermit. 
I've been trying to get that big frog all year. And he had this long gigging pole, you know, that you get them with. It's, you stab them and flop them in the boat. And so we started easing down the bayou. And we was trying to get to where we heard that frog go ribbit. And Daddy was shining a light on the bank. And sure enough, the biggest frog I've ever seen in my life. It was just a massive frog sitting over there. So we used to go easing up to it. But the only problem was there was this big old ugly, big box-headed black water moccasin sitting right in front of the frog. And I wanted to get a shot at him. But Daddy was going straight towards him. He was in the front of the boat. And I was like, Daddy, I, I don't have a shot at that snake. Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. He's like, and I'm like, Daddy, I can't shoot him. Daddy, Daddy. And, and, and we'll tell the rest of the story in a little while. But, <clears throat> but right now, turn to Luke chapter 15. We're going to spend most of the day in Luke chapter 15. <laughs> It's bad when your congregation is saying, help me, Lord. We ain't even got to the first scripture yet. <laughs> I'm sorry. We have a good time in church, don't we? We're gonna, at least I do. <laughs> Lord, we, did I, I forgot to pray for Cruiser Johnson. Lord, I just lift him up to you. I thank you that it all is well. And I thank you that they'll speak in faith and believe and watch you do great things in his life. Thank you, Lord. Jesus' name. Well, in Luke 15, it says tax collectors and other notorious sinners. Has any of you ever been known as a notorious sinner? That means somebody that's noted for their sinning. I mean, they're experts at sinning. <laughs> and tax collectors, you know, IRS guys, you know. Tax collectors, and <laughs> if you work for the IRS, I was just kidding. <laughs> tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach why would somebody that's a sinner come to listen to Jesus teach unless he was kind of a welcoming fellow right made them feel welcome you know deep down even notorious sinners want to know the truth they got a, a desire to be changed. They don't want to be like that. Who wants to just stay in their sin? Nobody. Who wants to be this person that they hate? Nobody. Well, maybe some. But most, for the most part, these notorious sinners and tax collectors were showing up to hear Jesus preach. And this made the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. How dare he? Spend time with these people. I guess they felt that Jesus should have just looked down his nose at them like they did. Looked down on them like they weren't the self-righteous pretenders that the Pharisees were. Did I say that? How can I call these Pharisees self-righteous pretenders? Well, I can do it because Jesus did it, did it in other places. He called them whitewashed tombs. He said, man, you got nice marble and you're all clean and got flowers and everything. You're looking good on the outside, but you open that booger up, on the inside you ain't nothing but dead man's bones. You're full of death, hate, and destruction. So it wasn't me that said it. These are the kind of people who will run the sinners smooth out the church. 
They don't want the sinners amongst us. We want a social club for the happy self-righteous. <laughs> I guess it might be easier to have church like that. You don't have as many problems to deal with, I guess. But is that really the atmosphere? That <laughs> is that the heart of Jesus for the church? I don't think so. I think Jesus intends for his church to be a, a hospital of hope. Don't you agree? He said in Luke 5, 31, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I've, called not to, I've come not to call those who think they're righteous, but those who know they are sinners and they need to repent. That's who he's come to call. Those who will get honest. Because without Jesus, you think you're righteous? Come on. You are deceived. Jesus showed Associating with sinful people doesn't necessarily condone their behavior unless, of course, you compromise yours to do it. See, Jesus didn't do that. He ate with the sinner, but he didn't sin with the sinner. He preached to the sinner. He loved the sinner. He welcomed the sinner. Probably hugged them. He got down and touched the lepers. He showed compassion to all. But he didn't sin with them. So as long as you know, you're not compromising your behavior. Well, anyway, in verse 3, Jesus hears this mess, and sees how frustrated they are with him for eating with, with the sinners. So Jesus told them this story. You see how it, you, you read things in context. How many were here Wednesday night? Awesome message about how to read the Word of God. If you don't come on Wednesday nights, we've got a next level Wednesday service. It's really taking us to the next level. It's digging out things in the Word of God. Um, anyway, in context, because of they said this, Jesus told them this story. He said, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go search for that one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully Carry it home on his shoulders. In other words, he's going to stoop down and pick this nasty beast up, put it on his shoulders, and carry it home. How many sometimes you know that to get somebody to come to church, you almost got to go pick them up? Literally. You got to go get them. Anyway, when he arrives, what is he going to do? He's going to call together his friends and neighbors and say, Rejoice with me because I found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven. Say more joy in heaven. There's more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over the 99 who are righteous and haven't strayed away. God likes to find the lost. He likes us to go get the lost. In other words, Jesus is saying, Pharisees, if something means something to you, you'll go find it when it's lost. Of course, if you don't care about people dying, in their sins, dead in their sins and trespassing, dying and go to hell, well, you probably won't go. You'll, you'll find you a little country club of like-minded people. So we continue on in verse 8. He tells another story. Still in context, he's still talking to the Pharisees. This is a story about a lost coin. We just heard a story about a lost sheep. He says, or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp, sweep the entire house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she will call all her friends and neighbors and say, Rejoice with me. Say, Rejoice with me. Rejoice with 
because I found my lost coin. God rejoices when lost things are found. In the same way, there's joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. Pharisees, the lost one might be in your own house. That's what Jesus is saying. It might be in your church. There might be somebody in church, but still lost. You know, you might you got to light a lamp to expose things. you got to sweep the house and look for them. You know, people think of all, just because they're going to church don't mean they're right with God, don't mean that they've received Jesus as Lord. They still might be checking it out, you know. But when we find one and we help them with their questions and, and we... We find, we, we find them, all right, then there's great joy in heaven. Verse 11, to illustrate the point further, are we still in context with those Pharisees who don't, don't like Jesus eating with sinners? To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons, and the younger son told the father, I want my share of the inheritance now. Now, you know this story, the parable of what? The prodigal son. Right. So the younger boy is complaining he wants his now. It must have been awful embarrassing to the father because that's just not the way it was done. You're supposed to get your inheritance after the dad dies. In other words, the boy saying, I can't wait for you to die, dad. Just give me mine now. But the dad gives them their wish and splits his inheritance among his two sons. Well, the younger son runs off immediately, goes to the, to the clubs, I guess, Sort of, so to say, and he spends his, all his inheritance on riotous living. Oh, he lives it up and parties, has a good time for a little while. But then he spends all his money. How many knows <laughs> that'll take you money quick? Nothing to show for it. But anyway, he spends all his money, and about that same time, wouldn't you know, a famine hits the land, there's nothing to eat. He has to go find a job. Isn't it? If any of you was once a teenager and you were a partier and you ran out of money, wasn't it a bummer to have to go find a job? <laughs> oh, man, has it come to that? We're going to have to get a job? I wish somebody would tell our teenagers that today. I wish not just the teenagers, our college-age kids, our young adults. I wish somebody would tell somebody to find a job, you know. We got like 40-something percent of Amer Americans not even working, living off the other 60%. But I don't want to go in there. <laughs> I'm not unlocking that box today, but boy, it sure is a bummer when you got to go find a job. And so he gets a job feeding the pigs, but he's so hungry. He wants to eat the pig food. And he comes, and he thinks, to, and it says in verse 17, when he finally came to his senses. How many people you know you just wish they would finally come to their senses? How many of you are still trying to finally come to your senses? <laughs> Don't raise your hand. In many regards, I'm still trying to come to my senses. But it's a good thing to finally come to your senses. And he said to himself, at home even the hired servants have enough food to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. He says, I'm going to go home to the Father, and, I'm gonna, and he concocted this story that he was going to tell about how sorry he is and how he knows. Well, there, there seemed to be some true repentance. 
It's sad that we got to get to that place where we're ready to eat pig food before there's repentance in our heart, but that's the way humans usually are. And so he returned home to the father in verse 20. And while he was still a long way off, the father saw him coming. And the father was filled with love and compassion, and he ran to his son, embraced and kissed him. And the son said to him, now he had, this, he had his speech already planned out, you see. He said, Father, I've sinned against both you and in heaven, and, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But his father said to the servant, okay, boy, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. Kill the fatted calf, the one we've been fattening up just for such an occasion. We must celebrate with a feast, for this son of mine was dead. Now he's returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. And it says, so the party began. So the party began. Christians can party. Party all the time. Party all the time. Say, party on, dudes. (laughs) There's supposed to be party at the father's house. When the lost are found, party with the angels in heaven. So there's the answer to your question. You're probably expecting me to say no, but yes, there's supposed to be a party in the house of God. The Father's heart is to party when the lost come home. That's on your sheet. The Father's heart is to party, to celebrate when the lost come home. You know, the Father's sitting there waiting for the lost to come in. He's looking He's longing for his sons and daughters to come home. Now us, we're supposed to be like that shepherd who went to find the lost sheep. We're here on the earth, and we're the goers. We must also keep watch over the coins that we think are in our pocket. Because one of them could slip out a hole somewhere and try to wonder, you know, I have a coin, it'll roll off and you'll be looking under everything in the house. So we got to, we got to keep the light in here because some people try to backslide on you. We, we can't control anybody, of course, but we can love people. We can go get them and we can go show them, look, we're not happy you're leaving. We can show them compassion. We can have the same attitude that the Father had, the same attitude that Jesus had. We must show a tender heart when they come back home, too. You know, some people will come to church for a while, and they have a... People have patterns. You ever notice that? Some people come for a while, and the world draws them back in, and they're gone for a period. Then they come back, and everything's strong, it's like the parable of the sower, you know, where some seed fell on the good ground, some fell on thorny ground. The cares of this life choke them out, you know. The, the want for other things causes them the, the persecution of being a Christian with their friends, and they fall back in. There's all kind of reasons people come and go out of the body of Christ. But we should have a tender heart when they come back home. We're called to be ministers of reconciliation and restoration. You know, some of us, if we think back in our history of our ups and downs and how long, they say it takes the average person eight times to hear the gospel before they'll even respond. I wish that we could all get it in one message. Man, that would be so easy. 
we could have like six months worth of messages and then we could just all quit, you know? And we would all be perfect. But some of you are saying, I heard this message last month. Well, we ain't got it yet. That's why we have to preach the same things over and over because our brain leaks at night when we sleep. But, but we keep teaching and keep until people start to, to develop convictions in their heart. You know what convictions are? They're things that you understand that this is who I am from now on. I've already made up my mind about that. Because if you don't have convictions, guess what's going to happen? You're going to be swayed by everything that comes down the pike. You know, whatever happens, you'll be, whatever will be, will be, kuna matata, whatever. But if you have convictions, you're just like, no, I know who I am. I don't do that anymore. I'm not like that anymore. This is, this is the good thing I do. This is, what, this is what I do. But anyway, when people come back that hadn't got it yet, that are still going through the cycles or whatever, we got to keep loving them. We got to keep provide. How many of you have insurance, health insurance? If not, I'm writing it down and we're going to tell Obama. <laughs> He's not in office anymore, but, you know, we're going to get fined for that. No, but if you've got insurance, do you just use it once? No, sometimes you go to the doctor. You go through cycles. You know, I wish we all had the faith to stay completely healed all the time. But no, life happens and things happen. But we must stand ready with them to put the robe back on them when they come home. To put the ring back on the finger, the sandals back on their feet. And we got to be the ones to party with them and celebrate. Hey, they are home. You know, I'm sure when that kid came back home, it, he didn't have all his thinking right yet. But we, they still, man, we've been waiting for this. Let's party together. Putting the robe and the, the ring and the sandals and the, the party together helps them see that they're loved. That people, I don't know, I'm just getting all off my message. <laughs> but I'm just trying to be real with you. People have issues. They hadn't been treated right when they were growing up. Parents did this to them. Somebody molested them. There's issues in people's lives that are real deal. And people don't just say a prayer and all of a sudden everything is fixed in their life. They've seen things. They've done things. They're just, the devil is on their shoulder. Now we know we have the power to overcome sin. We know God is with us and, and he will help us, but but we have to reach out for it. And sometimes we don't even know how to. And so we help one another. We pick one another up. We carry one another. We put each other on our shoulders if we have to. And carry them home. What is the robe? I believe it signifies the robe of righteousness. See, God imputes righteousness to us imputes is a big fancy word it means he sees us as righteousness he declares we're righteous are we really righteous yet no we're anything but most of the time but he chooses to impute righteousness to us he gives us salvation and then he tells us while we're here work it out in the sanctification process so we teach them by giving them a robe of righteousness. 
that the same forgiveness that we partook of, you can partake of. Isaiah 61.10 says, I am overwhelmed with joy in the Lord my God. Isaiah says, for he has dressed me in the clothing of salvation. He has dressed me in the clothing. What is the clothing of salvation? It says, he's draped me in the robe of righteousness. That's how God clothes you. When you're saved, he puts a robe of righteousness on you. And, and, and to the extent that you can understand that righteousness, to the extent that you can receive that righteousness in your life, you can begin to be that righteousness. If you can see it, you can receive it and be it. And then, he, then we're to put the, the signet ring on their finger. The authority of the believer. Representing restored identity and belonging. That you belong. You're part of the family. You see, God doesn't just bring us in as servants or slaves. He brings us in as adopted children of God. Then he puts the sandals on our feet, which uh, uh, represent renewed hope and purpose. Why would sandals? Well, in, in Ephesians 6, it talks about feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In other words, these feet were made for walking. These boots were made for walking. I got to go tell somebody about this good thing I have found. The preparation of the gospel. Man, you put your shoes on because you're getting ready to go. And see, that's what gives purpose to your life. Okay, so... I wanted to be an astronaut. Well, great, you got to the moon, but when you died, you're coming back to the earth, you know? How you, you need to be worried about what, where you going, how you going to get to heaven <laughs> and how other people are. So you put those, the preparation of the gospel of peace, these are going boots so that I can go tell something. It gives me purpose in this life, and it gives other people purpose to know that you're working with God. You're one of the goers. And when you see that, there's a shift that goes on in your brain. And you say, wait a minute, I'm not just at church to, to get all the time. Well, I am. But I'm supposed to get so that I can give. There is a, God may, may be doing something here. I didn't even, I, I'm starting to figure it out. I'm not just supposed to live by the TV God. I'm supposed to live with with purpose, direction. I have a destiny. God has called me with a holy calling. And it gets good then. And then there's the party. We need to celebrate when people come home. And we do. That's, you know, like last week we had a baptism. We, that's a celebration of people who have gone under and died to the old man and come alive new. And we celebrate. We celebrate with people when they... when. God changes their lives. There's no greater joy than to see that my brothers walk in the truth. That their soul prospers. They may be prosperous and be in health even as their soul prospers. Many of us, you may have a prodigal son or grandson, prodigal daughter, granddaughter. You may, uh, somebody in your life Everybody in here probably has somebody in your life. You're waiting on them to come to their senses. Right? People you're praying for. And when they do, don't you want to be able to go to a church? Don't you like going to a church where you can say, why don't you come to church with me? 
Because when, when you come through our doors, people won't be looking down their nose at you. They don't smell like us. Look at those tattoos or they smell like smoke or what? Really, is that what we're concerned about? Aren't you glad that you go to a church where people, no matter what they look, smell, or taste like, we're not going to taste them, but <laughs> whatever, they, whatever they come through that door, they're gonna, people are going to rush to them and hug them and love them and make them feel welcomed. I hope we do. My goodness. Am I my brother's keeper? That's right, brother. We're not like Cain, who slew his brother. That's my favorite scripture in the King James. And wherefore slew he him? You ever read the King James? Wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil and his brothers were righteous. Wherefore slew he him? I love that. <clears throat> but we're not like Cain. And we're not like the prodigal son's older brother. Still in Luke 15, in verse 25, it says, Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working after all this happened. And when he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of the servants, What's going on? Hey, your brother's back. Your father has killed the fatted calf, and we're celebrating because of his return. But the older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. Why would he be angry? His father came out and begged him. He said, all these years, Dad, I've slaved for you, and you never once, and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And all these years, you never even gave me a goat <laughs> to party with my friends. Yet your other son comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes. Look, he doesn't even, even call him his brother. He says, your other son. Isn't that a shame? You're, when this other son of yours comes back after squandering his money on the prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fatted calf. His father said to him, Look, dear son, you've always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. In other words, it's your fault if you hadn't been partying. It's your fault if you hadn't been partying. We had to celebrate this happy day. For your brother was dead and he's come back to life. He was lost and now he is found. If the lost can't go to church to be accepted, where in the world are they supposed to go? Do you know for a lost person to come through those doors back there, what courage it takes after the way they've heard the church is? And they may have experiences some churches that look down their nose at them. For them to come, dare to come through those doors, thinking they're going to they're going to condemn me in there and this, they are hurting. They are needing love. They're needing somebody to to wrap their arms around them and, and show them some mercy. My goodness, Jesus told five chapters earlier in Luke ten the parable about the good Samaritan. You remember the Good Samaritan? It was a, a Jewish fella. He was walking down from Jerusalem to the town of, uh, where was he going? What was the one that the walls came down? Jericho. He was going down to Jericho, and some bandits jumped him on the road, whooped him good, threw him over in a, in a dirty ditch, left him 
almost neck and bruised, beaten, bloody, probably knocked out, took all he had. And then it says a priest, a priest comes walking down the road and sees him in the ditch and walks way over on the other side so he don't even have to get near it. Then another guy who worked in the temple, a temple assistant, he comes over, says he looked at him. Ugh. Dog, man. Walked off. You need to get up out of there or something, you know? These are people that work in the temple. A priest. Then it said a, des a despised Samaritan. In other words, people that didn't get along with the Jews. There's like a racial war between the two people. He came back. At least he had some compassion. He pulled the guy out of the ditch. Got his hands all messed up and dirty. Got his wine and his oil. Poured it in his wounds. Washed him off. Cleaned him up. Bandaged him up. Somehow picked this nasty, bloody fellow up and got him up on his own donkey and, and let him ride the donkey while he walked the rest of the way. Brought him to an inn. Paid for a room, got somebody to take care of him, stayed with him a while, but had to go, but left enough money so they could take care of him while he was gone and said, if it costs more than this, I'll pay it when I get back. This guy got his hands messy. Dealing with people, it gets messy. Well, it's easy to say that, Pastor God, but you don't know the drug addiction they're in. And every time I, every time I try to help God, people are messy, I know. Nobody's saying this is easy. It may cost you something. It's certainly going to cost some time. Probably cost you some of your own hard-earned cash. Might get your clothes muddy. Might lose your reputation. Somebody might look down on you for associating, just like they did Jesus. You know, when you do something like Jesus, you ought to not take that the wrong way. You ought to be happy when you do something like Jesus. You know, the parable ends with this phrase. Jesus says, go and do likewise. The Samaritan is the hero of this story. The one that got off his high horse. You know, one day we'll stand before Jesus. In Matthew 25, 37, the righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink or a stranger and show you hospitality or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick and in prison and visit you? Well, Jesus wasn't around, you know. Maybe we don't see, G in this dispensation, we hadn't seen Jesus yet. Maybe we don't get to see him, but Jesus says, I tell you the truth, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. Jesus takes it personally. When you were the one to help somebody get out of the ditch of their life, he said, you were doing it to me. I've often read this, and says, when you did it to the, one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, I thought he was saying, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters. But maybe he's saying, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters. 
You did it to me. This is our mission statement at the Passion Church. We are a warm, fun, loving, celebrating, partying bunch. <laughs> a family eager to reach out with God's love and restore all who have lost their way. Everyone matters. Everyone. We're a hospital of hope and a fire igniting the passionate pursuit of true purpose in people's lives. Doesn't that line up? with what we're seeing here today? You know, often as pastors, Angie and I are, are blessed with the opportunity to, to help people. I mean, that's what, what we, why we're in this deal, because God gives us opportunities. We, we have a heart for people. He gave us the heart. And, and we're in, so we're in position to help folks. But a lot of times, we're rejected. They don't want our help. A lot of times, they don't appreciate it when we do help. A lot of times we help them, then they go back to what they were doing before. A lot of times they resent our help, they get mad, they leave, and then they talk bad about us. It's like, sometimes it's like, well, I'm human. <laughs> Although I sound like a horse. <laughs> Mother Teresa said, if you're kind, people may accuse you of ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you're honest, people may cheat you, but be honest anyway. If you find happiness, people may be jealous, but be happy anyway. The good you do today, it may be forgotten, but do good anyway. Give the world your best, and it may never be enough, but give your best anyway. For you see, in the end, is between you and God. It was never between you and them anyway. Everything you do, do as if unto the Lord. When you do it to them, you're doing it to Him. Do you really love Jesus? Then you got to love His people. You got to love them when they ain't loving you back. You remember last week we talked about love, and love never says that's not fair. Love is the bigger person. It gets over the little slights and the way we're mistreated. Somebody has to die to self, take up their cross, and follow him. We can't all just sit on the pew. <laughs> Did I say that? <laughs> oh. <laughs> but what if, what if when Jesus after he had been beaten with the cat of nine tails, he's barely able to stand. He's sitting up there with a blood-soaked robe and a crown of thorns on his head, and the people are shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! Release unto us Barabbas! What if Jesus suddenly came to him? What? Wait a minute. Barabbas is a murderer. All I've done is go about doing good. Helping folks, healing folks, loving folks, delivering folks, feeding folks, saving folks. You're going you're gonna to release this murderer instead of me? God, you know, I was on board with this thing. I, I understood what you was doing. You know, you, you got a love for people and all this, but this is taking it too far. You know, they're not appreciating this. God, you look, you, they're not, 
They're choosing a murderer over me. What all I've done for them? I'm not doing it no more. Call down the angels. Come get me. <laughs> I'm going back to my throne. I'm through with this. Does that sound anything like the Jesus you know? Should that sound anything like the Christians you know? No. No. Did I tell you all the story about when I went frog gigging? <clears throat> so we was on the bow, okay. And Daddy spots Kermit. The one he'd been waiting on, the big old boy. But the problem was, there's this big water moccasin sitting right in front of Kermit, and I can't get a shot. And I'm trying to tell him, Dad, Dad, I can't get a shot unless I shoot one of your ears off. You know, Dad's not paying me any attention. He's got his focus. And he goes up on the bank, paddles up on the bank, right there in the face of that water moccasin, and he reaches out over that water moccasin with that frog gig and stabs big Kermit right in the heart. But when he does, that big water moccasin retaliates. It springs, it leaps up with those big fangs and digs in and releases every ounce of venom in that thing. And I, I said, Dad! And I was thinking, oh, the horror, and I'm screaming. And, and Dad says, hush up, boy. The thing had reached and grabbed his uh, frog gig. And he shook him off and hit the snake with a paddle, and then he got the frog gig and threw that big... Kermit and Heath slap. <laughs> it's amazing the boy's still sane today, you know. But why do I tell this story? I don't know. Yes, I do. Because somebody has got to brave the elements. Somebody has to muster the courage to go out amongst the snakes. Somebody has to care enough, trust enough to reach out with the sword of God's spirit and stab somebody in the heart and put them in the boat. Somebody's got to go out there and do it. Where they're safe in the boat, in the ark. We've got to get out. Somebody's got to get out of the boat, at least lean over the boat. We've got to be willing. Somebody has got to go into the dark, murky, ugly places of this world and do it. We live here. We're not of this world, I know. But we're in it, and we've got to go. Somebody has got to get out of the boat. Amen? Pastor, when are you going to preach something that's going to help me? When, Pastor, I need, I need financial help. Pastor, when are you going to talk about some faith? When are you going to preach on something that's going to benefit me? What do you think I've been doing in some detail? See, all that me thinking is, what's the problem? <laughs> you want your life to be radically changed? You want to experience the joy that you hear about, that the disciples had, that Apostle Paul had. Then take personal responsibility and go get God's lost sheep and experience the joy of carrying a lost brother home on your shoulders.
Put on the robe of righteousness. Live it out before them so that they can see that there's a better way. Put on the family ring and use your authority in the kingdom of God to build dad's kingdom. Get with the program. Get involved in something that's eternal. Don your sandals as ambassadors of this good news. God wants you to use your shoulders to carry the lost home. He wants to use your love to bandage up the wounded and the brokenhearted. He wants to use your house as a place he can carry the hurt so that they can be healed. He wants you to weep with the brokenhearted. He wants you to rejoice with others when they succeed. There's no rejoicing like rejoicing for others. It's better than rejoicing for yourself, especially if you had a hand in helping them. That's how loving is done. Take off those rose-colored Pharisee's glasses and come down from that high horse. That is not who you are. Celebration ain't ever going to begin on that high horse. You got to come down off the horse for the celebration to begin because it's time to get this party started. Don't you want a party? Don't you want to, what is it, like it's 1999? Some of you probably don't even remember 1999. Never saw 1999. <laughs> I remember when, when I was your age thinking, man, 1999 is another 30 years. <laughs> yes. Yes. The answer is yes. Christians should party all the time. Party all the time. There should be a celebration in the house. I hope there's a celebration before we leave. For you and I, my brothers, must never forget that we were that lost sheep. We were once that lost coin. And we were that prodigal son or daughter. Each and every one of us. Thanks for listening to the podcast today. We hope you enjoyed it and that it inspires you to live out God's Word. For more information, visit us at www.mypassion.church.